0: As we continue our study of Matthew's gospel, our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And before we look at some things from this text, I want to just zoom out for a second and draw your attention to something. As Matthew's Gospel begins, you have Jesus in the waters of baptism, passing through the waters. And after he passes through the waters, he goes into the wilderness. And then after he goes into the wilderness, he's up on the mountain teaching the commands of God. That should create a picture of that reminds you of the Old Testament Where Moses led the people through the waters, into the wilderness, and then he's on a mountain, giving the commands of God. And Jesus is intentionally presenting himself as the fulfillment of all scripture, of every prior word, of all prophetic word. He is the greater Moses. You'll see there in the text we just read. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Of course, this is the saving grace of the gospel, because if it were not for Christ fulfilling it, then in the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lord, save me from the the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you're paying attention to the standard, the requirements of the Sermon on the Mount, they would be utterly staggering if it were not for the saving grace of God. And so last week, as we began the teaching on uh, Matthew's gospel, and um, Philip Tatros was here and he taught on the Beatitudes, which are right before this. just want to remind you that when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are the hunger, and blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those persecuted for my name's sake, the word blessed in the Greek could also be translated congratulations to. Which is an interesting phrasing, isn't it? Congratulations to the poor, congratulations to those who are merciful. It's because... He is describing those who have already turned. He is describing the followers. He is giving a prescription of God's law and a description of what love for God does to empower our desire to walk out his law. And so here he's contrasting two things, two kinds of faith. There's a kind of faith that's dead and there's a kind of faith that's alive. Again, I'll zoom out just for a quick sec because the Sermon on the Mount, when you you say that phrase, people often think of the Beatitudes and stop there. Or perhaps this text and stop there, but it actually goes on for two more chapters, the whole teaching. And, and if you were to look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually presents two ways to live. There's two ways to think about giving. There's two ways to pray. There's two ways to fast. There's two ways to think about rewards. There's two ways to think about money. There's two ways to think about the needs of the poor. By the time you get to chapter 7, there's two ways of judging. There's two ways of relating in obedience. There's two ways, there's two trees, there's two kinds of fruit. And the Sermon on the Mount ends with, there's two kinds of, there's two ways to build your house. Right? That's where it all goes. So right now, in this particular launching of his teaching, he's like, you know, there's, there's, two, there's two different kinds of faith. The kind that's alive and the kind that's dead. So this morning, we will, for the next... Uh, little bit here. We'll consider three three truths from Jesus' teaching. The first one is that if we are the blessed, which we are, the blessed you have already turned to the Father, we are now united to the Son, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to uh, live lives that have a loving and preserving effect. And that loving, preserving effect is seen in the imagery of salt in verse 13. So we'll unpack that for a bit. After this Life of loving and preserving influence that we're called to. The second thing we're going to look at is how we're called to share the gospel with intention. And that sharing of the gospel with intention is seen in the image of of light, verses 14 to 16. And then lastly, we'll consider how we're empowered for this righteousness, empowered for this life of renewal, of joy and of hope. And you see that in verses 19 and 20. So let's start with this first thing. Called to lives that have this loving and preserving effect. This image that Jesus chooses of salt. It was a very valuable commodity. In a world where you don't have chest freezers and there's no refrigeration, salt was critical. Salt was valuable. Salt slowed decay. It was so valuable. In fact, some historians recorded that there were certain certain, uh, times when Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt. And that gave rise to the phrase, somebody being worth their salt. It was so valuable. If you had something that could pre- prevent uh, or slow decay. And so Jesus says, you know, if we are, as the children of God, called to be salt, and we lose that saltiness, he uses uh, some translations say, um, we lose your taste. The word in the Greek is uh, moreno, which which could also be translated, you become dull, you lose your edge. Jesus is saying something really provocative here because what he's saying is whether you're present or not, it makes no difference. There's no relevance to your presence because you're not having any sort of... It's very provocative. Whether I live on the street in the neighborhood or not, it just... There's no relevance. It doesn't matter. I'm not having an effect. Whether I'm going into this uh, career path and I've got people that are working with me every single day... And whether I'm there or not, there's no, in, no impact. It's, it's provocative. But we're called to this, and it gets us to think about the, the, what the implications are of being salt. Which is that, well, the only way to have any sort of a loving, preserving influence is to, is to go into something. Again, the image of salt being rubbed into things. So where the church, the people of God, were called to be rubbed in, so to speak into the cult, surrounding culture and the city and the, the workplace and the schools and the places of recreation and just civic life. It's not even new. It's what God's wanted from the beginning. I'll get to that a little bit later in a packet. But I mean, this is what the people of God were always supposed to be doing. And at the point when Jesus is teaching this, the most religious people around are absolutely not even close to this. The Pharisees and the scribes, which at the end of the text he says, unless your righteousness exceeds them, it's game over. The Pharisees and the scribes had no loving, preserving impact whatsoever on the culture. Jesus had nothing good to say about the way in which they were walking out their faith. So provocative. So what is he actually after for us? What this provokes me to consider in my own life, and it was challenging to write this part of the sermon, is this. If my highest commitment is my own comfort, I can't be salt. If my highest commitment is to ensure that I don't experience any discomfort, it's impossible for me to be salt. Because the only way for me to have a preserving impact uh, in my neighborhood, the street that I live on with people, is I've got, I've got to be enough in their lives. But being a source of love and of care and of influence... Uh, as it relates to the love and the grace and the wisdom of God. I mean, I've I've got to be in the conversation. I can't be so far outside the conversation that it's impossible for me to have uh, any preserving impact. So it is very provocative. But it's also very encouraging, extremely encouraging, because Jesus is overtly saying that as a follower, this is actually who we are. So he's inviting us to consider that, yeah, you and I may fail to live this way. We may fail to be these kinds of people. But the fact of the matter, this is actually who you and I were created to be as God's children. So this is, a, this is not just a roll up your sleeves and try harder tomorrow sermon. This is, actually, I have to look in the mirror in a new way here. Because, yes, there may be aspects of my character, my love for God, uh, the, the, my obedience to Christ, ways in which I am failing to be. But Jesus is saying, actually, you have to look in the mirror and reconsider that this is actually who you were created to be. So, in a sense, it is, it, this is wildly encouraging. Because even if you're here and you're saying, you know, we're only five minutes into the sermon, but this is feeling, I can feel my throat closing up because I don't think I'm a person of preserving loving wisdom and influence, sort of marinating myself in the culture and having an impact, my encouragement to you is yes, 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 friends, you and I may fail to be these kinds of people. We're also not called to change the world. We're called to love our neighbor. So we're actually called to live very small lives, small, meaningful, loving, influential lives. But the people who are we are rubbing shoulders with every day in a very intentional and loving and meaningful way so Jesus says don't lose the saltiness otherwise you're of no use and I think this is, this is a shot across the bow at what had been established with uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they were, so, they were so absolutely isolated from the culture it was impossible for them to walk this the walk us out their faith was absolutely dead but this is what faith looks like that's alive loving preserving effect let's move on so, the next image that Jesus gives is the light. And I think this speaks to, as we read um, throughout the Gospels, and then we reflect on the pastoral letters, going back and saying, what are the implications of being a light, a city on the hill, what does that look like? It looks like this, sharing the Gospel with intention. And I want to draw your attention to verse 14, where Jesus says to his followers, you and I by extension, he says, you are the light of the world. So that's pretty provocative, because that's actually the phrase he uses to describe himself. So in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And here he's saying, you are the light of the world. So again, if it were not for his grace, if it were not for his empowering presence, if it were not for the phrase he said earlier, where he says, I've come to fulfill the law, fulfill something. If Christ did not fulfill the law, then saying, you are the light of the world, would be utterly crushing. But because he has fulfilled something, because we're on this side of the cross, because our righteousness before God is already established, not by our own works, but Christ's perfected work, because we are accepted on the basis of what he did, not what you're doing on Monday morning. Otherwise, it's game over for all of you. None of us are keeping the law. The most sanctified person in here is not keeping God's law. We want to. We weave in and out of it. We're growing in our love for him. But standing next to Jesus... We're not the light of the world. He's the light of the world. But yet he points directly to his followers and he says, you are the light of the world. So why would he provoke us with such strong language? Imagine how intimidating that would have been if you were the first audience, hearing this for the first time. And he says, you're the light of the world. And by the way, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the people that you think are the most righteous people walking the earth. It would have been utterly crushing. But I don't think Jesus' goal in the Sermon on the Mount is to have everybody just go away and drag their knuckles and, and cry on their beds. He's wanting them to be cities on the hill and lights, to be followers of, of him in glorious and wonderful ways. And so, what is Jesus getting at? Why is he saying this? Again, he's wanting us to look in the mirror in a new way. This is very humbling, but it is actually very uh, empowering when we realize that this was all being lights of the world was always the plan, Jesus is not coming up and saying something here that like cannot be found in the Old Testament that is a new thing that it was never supposed to happen. Let's go back to creation. You're like, man, this is going to be a long sermon. Don't worry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip on ahead. But go back to Genesis one. There is a mandate given to our first parents. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty six: uh, Let us create mankind in our own image. And then he goes on in the cultural command to them is be fruitful and multiply. The multiplication is obvious. It's having children, multiplication, and families inhabiting the earth. But the fruitfulness is being the light of the world from the beginning, from the jump. Go and cultivate society and use your God-given gifts and skills and passions and loves and cultivate a world that reflects my light. You are the light of the world. Use everything that has been divinely given to you to just be a loving and caring person in your own way and be fruitful and multiply. So that was the goal in Genesis 1. And then all throughout the entire Old Testament, you see it again in Genesis 15, when God, after the sin of man and our beautiful world becomes broken, God makes a covenant with Abraham and he says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the world... We'll be blessed. So the purpose of the people of God was never to huddle around together, build a little righteous community, live inside it, and say, ooh, gross, to everybody who was outside it. So the whole story of the Old Testament, if you just sort of back, back out and look writ large, is, has been a failure of the people of God to be the light of the world. And by the time you get to the Pharisees, they are not the light of the world. They have created an idea of religion that is dead. Where they're the righteous people and they're inside. And the Gospels record that pe- Jesus said himself... When people leave after being with the Pharisees... They feel worse than when they got there. And so then you've got this isolated religious system... Where they look out at all the other nations... All the other cultures... Everybody else who doesn't share their, share their values, their ethics... And they say, gross. So from the beginning, God has wanted his people to be the light of the world. And then when sin broke everything, he said it again to Abraham, through you all the nations of the world should be blessed, go be the light of the world. And here again, now he's saying to his followers, but praise God, he's come to fulfill the law. But this is not a third reading of the law. It wasn't like first God gave the law and then man failed. And then the book of Deuteronomy comes around, which is Deuteronomos, namas, namas being law, the second reading of the law, and then they failed. And then Jesus goes, okay, well, I guess I got to come again, because they clearly are not getting it. So I'm going to stand on a mountain, and I'm going to give them the third reading of the law, and maybe if I give it to them, they'll get it, and they'll keep the law. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. So now this goes from being something that would otherwise be utterly crushing to, no, now, this is liberating and empowering. You and I are called to be a light in our neighborhood, on our street, on your campus, your place of recreation, whatever that's up to. In the city, as we do our civic life, these lights of the world. Very encouraging. By giving us the same description he gives to himself, light of the world, that has clear implications to union. Union with him. Power and grace. Praise God, there's no earning in it. Praise God, there's forgiveness for your failure, for my failure. Every once in a while when we come to this gym, for those of you who are um, uh, visiting today, basketball games will break out post-service. You know, My son will bring a basketball. Sometimes and basketball games break up back there. There's a ball in there. And every once in a while, that basketball net is really low. It's down at like eight feet. And when we get here, the first thing Nigel says when my boy comes in, he looks at that, he goes... We'll sit in the front row before worship starts. He's like, dad, 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 dad. Looks at the room, looks at the best one. He's like, mm. we're a, we're, a, we're a short family, so at a towering five nine and a little, uh, and my sons are all they're both like, oh, oh get taller. We can't hit a ten foot rim, and it's very very exciting to have an eight foot rim that you can dunk on, and feel like a hero, feel like you're pulling it off. That was the Pharisees. Keeping the law, dunking on an eight-foot rim. Jesus is like, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. They don't love God. They're leveraging him. It's not the same. Have you ever been leveraged before? Did you think somebody was your friend and then you found out they were just using you for... A connection or something else. And that feeling of being leveraged is devastating. The Pharisees, it was a religion of leverage. So Jesus says, No, 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 no. You're light. Light and salt in the world. And this is motivated by this love. Ultimately, it would be motivated by the saving grace of Christ. Because we are those who've received light, and now we are those who give light. We very much care about the city that we live in and our neighbors and our co-workers and it matters to us. And so Jesus gives this powerful metaphor and then he goes on and he says, you know, you're a city on a hill. I mean, you can't miss it. This clear image. But again, there's something about this image of light that I think we have to catch and it's not that we're drawing we're not it's not a, we're not standing in the spotlight drawing attentions to ourselves, which you could interpret this and just be like, live such an amazing life that everybody's like, wow. And you're like, well, Paul, doesn't the text say that? Ugh. There's a phrase after you can't miss, which says, that they may glorify my Father in heaven. If you omit the glorify the Father in heaven... And all you're kind of left with is let's go out there and live amazing lives. And if somebody happens to say, you know, why are you such a kind and good person? And then I'll share the gospel. And that's like just not a great way of thinking about the call in our lives to just sort of be off to the side. The whole purpose of being the city on the hill is that we're, we're lighting up something else. We're not standing in the spotlight. We are, the, we are supposed to be the spotlight. Shining onto something else. This is what the, this is what the purpose and the call of, of light is. The message of the Christian church is not look how good we are it 's look how perfect Christ is it 's not that you have to go out into i 'm not the sermon today is not go out and live such a pinterest perfect life that people are blown away by you, but it 's to live, live a life of such. Love and humility because of the saving grace of God, because of the healing work of God, that in all of your sadness or your brokenness or your trials or your challenges or your failures, that in all of it, the ways in which you've been renewed, the ways in which God has healed you, that you're glorifying him, shining up something else. You know, uh, you've never walked down a street at night and seen lights shining on some gorgeous architecture. Perhaps you went to a city and you saw some gorgeous architecture at night lit up. Or you've traveled abroad and you've seen some ancient architecture lit up. Nobody's ever looked upon that ancient architecture and then stared down into the spotlight and said, Wow, I wonder how many lumens that is. The whole purpose of the light is to shine onto the greater thing. Christ, Christ has come to say, I've glorified the Father. The call on your in your my life is to be pointing to Jesus. And so that is a very intentional message. So this is a text that is a lot about the way in which we live. And the way in which we live as followers of Christ is what the gospel does. And there is a difference between what the gospel does and what the gospel is. If we are a city on a hill and we are lights, and we are shining they would glorify the Father, the only way for them to glorify... That's a big word. How does, how does someone who doesn't even worship Jesus Christ come to glorify the Father, they've got to hear about the love of the Father. They've got to, it's, it's, not, it's not merely the good works. There's lots of people in this city who have different faiths and no faith who are doing good works. So it's beyond the good works to the glorifying of the Father. My friends, it's needing the boldness that you and I would preach the actual gospel. Like getting to the point in conversations where we talk about Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his atoning death and his historical divine resurrection. Giving a defense for the hope that we have in him. Not, not just living out in sort of like a, the battling and the exchanges of ideas, which is probably where, that, where some really great salt-like dialogue begins. But it's got to move from just conversations around different philosophies and the modern-day constructs of particular thoughts as it relates to civic life or what, uh, uh, how a person garners identity. It's got to translate out of that into the message of the actual gospel. St. Francis of Assisi famously said one time, um, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. And I appreciate the sentiment, and I know what he means, and I appreciate what he means, which is like live a congruent, loving Christian life. The problem with that idea is that the the gospel requires words, specific words, certain words. See, the, the, the way that salvation and saving grace comes has always been when Christ is preached. I'm not the only preacher in here. We are the ministers. We together are the preachers. And your preaching isn't gonna look like what I'm doing sitting there breaking out texts and exegeting things. But your preaching at at bottom, the word preach means to like to proclaim it. To be about it. And and we proclaim things all the time. Right? People get passionate about something, I gotta start a podcast. We gotta proclaim the good news of this Netflix thing that I just saw and it blew my mind and I'm starting a podcast about it. We're gonna deep dive into this fandom. I mean it just happens every day. And we're called to be these preachers, these proclaimers of this absolute good news the salt and the light so how does the salt and the light how do we lose the saltiness how do we get under the bushel I think it's we get off message I think we do what the Pharisees did right in different ways of course but Jesus didn't come and say be the salt of the earth be the light of the world like a city on the hill do what these guys are doing so somewhere along the line they got off message they got off brand and the same is true today how do, we, how do we get off message? We make something else the beating drum of our life. We take up something from the culture that is deemed to be like the most important thing, and that becomes our message. That's one way. There's a, there's a hundred ways. We can just become an echo of the, the woes and the angers and the frustrations of culture instead of being people who pray for those who govern we can get obsessed with governance and politics and and we can get swept away into sort of the the uh, sort of polarizing argumentative, perhaps unhelpful way of trying to have dialogues because we 've all got these small little political messiahs that we believe if this one gets elected that 's going to be salvation, and if this one gets elected it 's surely going to uh, unleash the apocalypse upon us and we relate to politics that 's sort of uh, very human trust. We can get off message. We can lose our saltiness that way. We've got to just stay on brand. Like, no. These are important conversations and I will be a part of them. I will give thought to my Christian worldview and how it relates to particular things. Whether it's politics or caring for the poor or the use of money or the properties of money or sexual ethics or what means by which should a person garner value, what is of true value. I can think thoughtfully through how my Christian worldview would influence those kinds of conversations so that I can be a person that thrives in pluralism, love my neighbor, whether they're a Muslim or atheist or agnostic or or Baha'i. It doesn't matter. I can be a loving and caring person. I can have a salt-like influence with them. But I have myself, am not moved. And I can train my children to do the same and go off into, whether it's post-secondary education or the workplace, totally surrounded by people that don't share their views, but yet be salt and light. The only way to do that is to stay on message. But Final thing as we close, being empowered for this righteousness, this renewal, this hope, and this... And this joy. This seems like a pretty tall order for that first audience. Can you just imagine being that first audience? You wander out onto the hill. You just had some lunch. You sit down. Your kids are wandering around. Some of the kids are crying. Jesus is teaching on the hillside. And he's laying this out. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of these Pharisees, I'm sure there were some people on the hill like, Yo, I just... Whoa. I, I did not think... Today was going to go this way. I was going to just receive a completely new mandate for my life. See, the reason why he takes a shot across the bow at the Pharisees is all of their their faith was dead, their religion was dead, because everything was about payment. But Jesus is talking about a life of pleasure. Pleasure and joy. Those aren't words you would associate with righteousness necessarily, but you need to. And it's because our righteousness before God is totally passive. Because Jesus has fulfilled all things. Our righteousness in the city, our righteousness towards each other is totally active as we live in this congruence and this love for him. We don't become righteous people because we love precepts. We become righteous people because we love a person. Christianity is not a life of just following rules. It is a glorious life of joy and walking into righteousness because we follow a king. And so now church, may, I, may we go out from this place and that our lights shine before men that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray.